recorded live from the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word. Brought to you by Beer Brewery, creating handcrafted batch beers with pints and growlers available at the tap room at 65th and Benvert Boulevard. And Miller Eads, an electrical contractor serving central Indiana since 1969. Wow, that was awesome. The reason I wanted that is because it was the theme music of the Lone Ranger. So, uh, right. go ahead. Dan Wakefield, uh, the, the, the title of this evening is That Time Indianapolis Hated Dan Wakefield. <clears throat> Dan Wakefield, and you're all, and this is predominantly about this scandalous book that he published in 1970, but some of you may not know, he has been outraging this city since long before that. Uh, he was just a college kid. He went away to school at Columbia in New York City. Uh, in 1953, the, uh, there was a flap in Indianapolis and it became a national news story when the, our war memorial refused to allow the uh, local branch of the American Civil Liberties Union to have a meeting in their facility. Uh, barred them, there were lawsuits, there was, a big, there was a big flap over it. Edward R. Murrow came to town and did a story about it. And this came on the heels just a few months earlier of another national story from Indianapolis in which a uh, school board member um, pr uh, proposed that Robin Hood, the story of Robin Hood, be banned from the Indianapolis public schools because he was always taking from the rich and giving to the poor. He was a communist, obviously. <laughs> so this was a kind of a double whammy embarrassment. And Dan Wakefield is a sophomore at Columbia, and he decided to try to do something about it. And he, uh, he went back to his dorm room put his cruller down, and dashed off a letter to the Indianapolis News. And it went a little something like this. The saddest and most shameful aspect of the situation is that people in every communistic country will read this just as they read reports of the Robin Hood incident in which the Russian press so gleefully gobbled up and dispatched. Here we have provided them with a blatant example of American hypocrisy. This is a nation founded on the principle of free speech and free assembly, now denying those basic rights. So, Uncle Dan, what was the fallout from that? Well, my uh, parents were initiated to their first responsibility of being my parents, and many phone calls came to them, either sympathizing with them for my having become a communist, or uh, berating them for raising uh, a son who was a communist. But uh, a lot of them, I think the main were, were people who I'd grown up with in Broderville who said, well, we don't understand this. Danny was such a good little boy. So at any rate, uh, I, uh, I was happy to see my, my letter was published in the news. And then a few days later, a letter was published uh, denouncing me, it was only signed by initials, but it said that uh, Dan Wakefield's letter shows what happens when our nice young men go east to college <laughs> and are corrupted. So uh, 
That was followed then, I'm happy to say, by a friend from Shortridge who was now at DePaul. So he wrote a letter to the news and said, well, I didn't go east to college. I'm in Greencastle, and uh, I agree with everything Dan said. And by the way, how come that other person just signed their initials instead of their name? So I felt very good about that. Flash forward uh, 17 years, and uh, we're up to 1970, and Dan Wakefield, former good little boy, does it again. He publishes the novel Going All the Way about growing up in Indianapolis, coming of age in Indianapolis in the 50s. All the action takes place in the summer of 1954, and the people here are uh, up in uh, quite a bit of arms. They're outraged. And um, it's, I'll, do, I'll read you a paragraph that does sort of go to the, um, it sort of brings out some of the hypocrisy that was going on in, Indiana, in Indianapolis at the time, or probably anywhere at the time, <clears throat> or at any time. So here's a paragraph from Going All the Way. For all Sonny's problems, he at least was thankful he wasn't a girl. Some of them really got the short end of the stick, if you really thought about it. The ones who made out with guys and weren't in the right clubs and came from big, poor families usually got the reputation of being sluts. But you take a girl like Dee Dee, she was always in the in-group and in the top clubs and sororities. And she wouldn't do it with a guy unless she was going steady or pinned or chained to him. And that made it all right. That wasn't being whorish or anything, even though if you count it up, she had gone steady and been pinned and chained to a hell of a lot of guys <laughs> ever since she was a freshman in high school. <clears throat> but getting laid by all those guys didn't count against her. Also, it didn't count against her to do it with a guy she used to go steady with or be pinned or chained to. After all, if you were once in love, who could know when the old spark might not be rekindled? <laughs> all in all, if you figured it out, Dee Dee Armbruster had probably f***ed a pretty fair number of guys between the ages of 14 and 21, but there wasn't a guy or girl in town who would have thought her promiscuous. She wasn't a slut. She was a theta. <laughs> I'm happy to say we have a theta who will be on the show. <laughs> now, Dan did not see the trouble coming, but his friend and colleague, Kurt Vonnegut, did. And he wrote a review, and we have a, a tape of him reading his review. Dan Wakefield is a friend of mine. We both went to Shortridge High School in Indianapolis, where the students put out a daily paper, by the way. His publisher is my publisher. He has boomed my books, so I would praise his first novel, even if it were putrid. But I wouldn't give my word of honor that it was good. Word of honor, he is also an important novelist now. And I guarantee you this, Wakefield himself having written this book, can never go home again. From now on, he will have to watch the 500-mile speedway race on television. That appeared in Life magazine, and I was soon to find out what he meant. I sort of took it as kind of a jokey kind of thing, but then I started getting phone calls. 
And I got a call from one man who I had only met once in my life, who was a lawyer here, and he said he was going to come to Boston, where I lived, and he was going to shoot me. So I didn't take that too seriously. And then I got a call from his son, who said, I, I think you should take my dad seriously, <laughs> because he does have a gun, and he shot his third wife in the leg. <laughs> so at that point, I went to the FBI, and I told them about this, and they, the man said, well, until he actually takes a shot, there's nothing we can do. So I guess their hope was that he would miss. But I wasn't so confident of that. And uh, then there were men who called up and said that they wanted to come to Boston. They weren't going to shoot me. They were just going to beat the hell out of me and because they thought that I had written about uh, their present wives who were old girlfriends of one of the characters in the book. So uh, that was uh, kind of disturbing. And uh, then I heard from one woman who I really only knew her first name in, in the halls of Shortridge, and she told people that my book had ruined her marriage. Now, I had no way of knowing about her personal life until she told me or told people that she was that character. Then I knew all about it. Uh, at any rate, uh, this this went on, and um, uh, I, I was really, I know at one point I actually went and stayed with a friend in New York for a while. And, uh, and I called up my good friend Alan Nolan, a distinguished lawyer and writer here. He, by the way, was one of the founders of the Indiana ACLU. So he was in on that first meeting. By the way, after the war memorial turned down the meeting, every hotel in downtown turned it down, and they ended up meeting in the basement of a Catholic church. So that was a part of history in 1953. Well, I called up Alan. I said, listen, you got to help me. There's a madman who wants to come and shoot me. <laughs> And there's this silence. And Alan, my good friend, said, I can't help you. I said, my God, what, what do you mean? Why not? He said, well, I'm on a committee of the Bar Association considering his disbarment. So I can't get involved in a case. He said, well, I'll recommend a great guy, another lawyer. So I talked to this other lawyer. You seemed like a very nice guy. That was the trouble. He was too nice a guy. So he went to the crazy guy and said, well, Dan is real sorry if he anyway offended you, or et cetera. And, and his trying to be ameliorative just got the guy more and more angry and, and uh, upset and violent. So uh, I went to my publisher's lawyer, who was one of the toughest guys I've ever known uh, in Boston. And uh, he, had, he was so tough. He had a leg shot off in World War II, and he became a handball champion. That was how tough he was. <laughs> so I went to his office. I told him this whole thing. And so he, he called up the crazy guy, and he said, Hello, this is Gerald Gillerman. I'm an attorney in the city of Boston. I know about your threats to Dan Wakefield. And I wanted to tell you that the FBI has been alerted. The state police have been alerted. The city police have been alerted. And if you so much as set foot in the city of Boston, 
you will be here a long, long time. <laughs> and I never heard from the guy again. <laughs> that taught me something. Uh, well, l let me ask you something else, Dan. Yeah. Um, in addition to just the action in the book, um, th what about the language? I mean, people, you're dropping F-bombs, Uncle Dan. And well, this is Indianapolis in 1970. And... Um, uh, uh, what was the fallout of that? Well, I, I think one of the problems was a lot of people here weren't reading contemporary novels like Philip Roth and, and John Updike, or they would have been accustomed to this. But you, if you hadn't been reading anything since, uh, what was the, uh, the original bestseller in Indiana? Ben-Hur? Yes, Ben-Hur. If you hadn't been reading since Ben-Hur, you'd be very upset. And by the way, uh, Vonnegut, I, I had the privilege of editing a book of the letters of Vonnegut, and one of my favorite letters, he wrote to the chairman of the school board of Drake, North Dakota, who had not only banned Slaughterhouse-Five, they burned copies in the high school furnace. And Vonnegut wrote to this guy, and among other things, he said, yes, uh, I, I did use coarse words because regular people sometimes do use coarse, coarse words. And my feeling when I wrote this novel, I, I decided to myself, I don't want to write the, the way that people were supposed to talk or the way they were supposed to behave. I want to write the way they really talk and they really behave. And I must say, I once was at, invited to Susan Neville's class at Butler and afterwards, a very nice woman, uh, older woman, I mean by older, like late 40s or something, came up to me and said, I want to thank you for writing Going All the Way. I gave it to my daughter when she was 16. I said, well, that's great, but it's kind of surprising. What did you do that for? She said, well, I told my daughter, when those guys are taking you out, romancing you and giving you a big line, this is what they're really thinking. <laughs> So I guess it was a kind of handbook. Uh, <laughs> what, do you, what, 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 um, you don't have kids, but if you did, what, how old would they have to be before you gave them a copy? I think she was right, 16. And uh, I do have a goddaughter that I've known since she was three, and she's now uh, 21, and my, one of my biggest thrills was when I picked her up after high school. She went to Miami High, which is not known for its literary excellence, and she said, uh, Danny, I, I read this, we read this great story in class today. I said, really? What was it about? She said, well, it was about this boy who lives in the future, and the government is trying to make everything equal, and so they had to do that. They had to have people wear weights that weighed them down. And uh, I, she went on to describe it. I said, well, was that boy named Harrison Bergeron? She said, how did you know? I said, well, I know the guy who wrote that story, a guy named Vonnegut. So that was great to know that uh, his stories are being read in high schools. Uh, so they, they made a movie of it in um, the mid-'90s, and it was, a, it was a good movie, and they had high, top-quality actors, um, but it didn't do that well at well, the box office. What, why do you think that? Well, 
the thing I'm most proud of, well, I love the movie, but Roger Ebert wrote a great review, and he said, uh, this movie is more like my own experience growing up than any movie I've ever seen. And his partner, Siskel, said, well, I liked American Graffiti better. So I thought, well, why do you have to bring that in? But at any rate, the, it, it got a terrible review in the New York Times, and it wasn't much like in the LA Times. What really upset me, and the New York Times said the, the novel was misogynist, and that Jeremy Davies, who played the role of Sonny, that seeing his white flesh was repugnant. That was too bad, because in, in writing this stuff about the mores of the 50s, which, by the way, were not restricted to Indianapolis, um, I, was, I, I was certainly not endorsing all that behavior. I was saying, you know, this is how crazy it is and how silly it looks like and how damaging it, it can be. So I'm sorry it didn't. But, but at that time, the cast was unknown. If we'd waited and shown it six months later, Ben Affleck would have been in Goodwill Hunting and uh, Rachel Weisz would go on to win an Oscar for The Constant Gardener. But at that time, all these people were unknown. So that's, that's what happened. I, you all know the story. You've read the book, I, I'm certain. Is that, that so? Yes. Uh, raise your hand if you identify with Sonny. Raise your hand if you identify with Gunner. Well, uh, I wanted to s the only character who was based on somebody I knew was my great friend Ted Stegg, who had been a big football star at Shortridge and Wabash. And I didn't know him in high school, and he and I never uh, had spent a whole summer in Indianapolis. In fact, uh, we, we were friends in New York when he came to go to Columbia on the GI Bill. And the way we met, uh, Dorothy Peterson, one of our high school teachers, called me up in Christmas of 54 and said, uh, Ted Stagg has just gotten back from the Army in, in uh, Korea, and he wants to go to Columbia on the GI Bill and would like to talk to you. So okay, great. I said, I'm give me a call. So Ted called and he said, well, listen, let's go have a beer at the Red Key. And that is when our legend began. And we sat at the end of the bar there. And uh, one of the thrills of the movie, uh, of course, we both knew Russ, the uh, original owner. And uh, in the movie, there's a scene just like in the book where they've had a, a beer and then Gunner says, uh, Hit me again, Russ. And in the movie, actually, Russ, although you don't see him, hands Gunner, hands uh, Ben Affleck the beer. So that was a great moment. Uh, it was it was really fun. So um, the publisher uh, realizes that they've got uh, a hit on their hands, and so. Uh, they sprang for a multi-city uh, book tour. Um, so you were flying all around the country. Uh, how many stops? Well, it was a 10-city book tour. And the reason they did that was the, uh, the book had been chosen as a main selection of the Literary Guild uh, for July of 1970. 
So a lot of people had to read it, or at least they had to read it or give it to somebody. And uh, so it was reviewed widely. And um, just like Slaughterhouse-Five, it was loved all over the country except here. By the way, there's, there's a, one, a letter I treasure from Vonnegut in the letters book. It's when the year Slaughterhouse came out, and he was a hero everywhere, you know, lines around the block for him at every bookstore, except here. And his letter simply said, uh, Dear Dan, I spent the day at Ellis Air's bookstore. I sold 11 copies, all of them to relatives, I swear to God. So... <laughs> Anyway, so I told the publisher, "Don't let's just not stop in Indianapolis. So we went to these other places. And then uh, I got home from the book tour. And um, I got a call from the publisher. said, listen, we have a wonderful opportunity. A TV station in Indianapolis uh, has said they want to interview you. And they will pay for you to fly out there. They'll put you up at the best hotel just so they can interview you. And Dan, this is all free. We, 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 every publisher wants something free. So, you know, they really wanted me. And I was in Boston. And I said, well, I tried to talk them out of it, but I couldn't. So they said, well, come to New York. We'll put you up here. And then we'll take you out to the airport and put you on the plane. So they came out this rainy, terrible morning that I was supposed to fly. And the very nice woman publicity director came with my tickets. She also had a copy of the New York Post for that day. And strange, and I, I thought, what's that got to do with me? She said, well, one of the guys in the office said you ought to see this. And the front page of the New York Post is a photo of a woman accused of murder. And she's coming out of her apartment with one hand over her face, and the other hand is cradling a book, and it's going all the way. <laughs> I, I said, this is, not a, this is not a good omen. <laughs> so they said, oh, don't be silly. You know, we've got the, we've got the tickets. Come on, we're going to take you out to the airport. So I got on this flight, which was a flight going to Indianapolis, Kansas City, and San Francisco. Okay, so TWA plane, we get in the air. 20 minutes after we're in the air, the captain says, we have to stop at a land at an emergency strip in Pittsburgh. So everyone starts going, oh my God, what is this? And we, the rumor was there was a bomb on the plane. So we, we land at this emergency strip lined with fire engines and we hustle into this cement block building and we gather around the captain of the plane and say, well, what was the threat? And he said, well, somebody called TWA and said, that plane will never get to Indianapolis. I said, that kind of narrows it down. I mean, it, they didn't say it will never get to Kansas City or San Francisco. So I, and in the meantime, TWA announced that they, they had cleared the plane, there wasn't any bomb, and so we could either go on with the flight or if we were freaked out, we could go, they would pay for us to go back to New York on a flight. So I, in desperation, I turned to this woman standing next to me. I didn't know any idea who she was. And I poured out my story about going all the way and different threats. And I said, I, I don't know whether to go on or 
go back to New York. And she said, well, I'm from Bloomington, and uh, I've heard about your book, and if I were you, I'd go back to New York. <coughs> so I did. I, I took her advice, which was very good advice, I'm sure. And, and to add to the irony, there was a song playing right at that time as a hit, and um, some of you might remember it. And do we have a clip of it, Steve? actually happened. That was the song. I felt that summed it up. But I don't want to, uh, before we have a break, I don't want to leave on that downer. And uh, I'm happy to say, when I first heard the concept, Uncle Dan's Story Hour, I thought, I want to have music. And the next thought was, I want to have Sophie Fought play the saxophone. I'm really thrilled to have her here. And you can look her up on her website, Sophie Fought. Dot com and fought as F-A-U-G-H-T. And she was written up a year ago as one of the promising young up-and-coming artists uh, of Indiana. So I'm really proud to have her. And uh, to get us in a better mood after that downer song, I wanted to play the song that reminds me of the days when in Shortridge we buzzed the divu which meant that we were uh, cruising around the rendezvous drive-in with a carload of guys trying to park next to a carload of girls. And that was high romance. And uh, our, our theme song then was a song I still love that Sophie will play called How High the Moon. Thank <laughs> you. 
everybody can have a drink. And we are back with Uncle Dan's Story Hour, Episode 1, in which Dan Wakefield writes a best-selling book, has huge success, and alienates everybody he knows. Dan, uh, when the book came out, uh, it, the timing was really weird because it, it came out in the summer of 1970. Uh, Dan graduated from Shortridge High School in 1950. His 20th high school reunion was within weeks of the release of this hot-selling book. And I was just thinking, if that was me, I'd have bought uh, a double-breasted blazer and a turtleneck and been home and been taking advantage of my celebrity. So, Dan, how was your uh, 20th reunion? Uh, I chickened out. Uh, I knew that going all the way would be brought up, and I politely declined to go to the reunion. And I later asked somebody, a friend about it, who went, and I said, uh, what, what, did going all the way get mentioned? And the friend said, Yes, uh, Luger was asked if he had read it. He was the speaker, and he said, yes, it arrived, I received it in a plain brown wrapper. <laughs> that was the way you sent dirty books in those days. So, uh, anyway, no, I, I didn't want to face that. I, I didn't have the courage to come back. Uh, so when, um, so you didn't have the courage to come back in 1970. When, uh, when did you finally have the courage to uh, come back and to face the music? Well, I, I came back uh, under cover of night to visit my parents, and I also every year sent them plane tickets to where I was, you know, New York or Boston or L.A. But the first time I came back publicly was in 1987. And that's because a very creative librarian at the Central Library called and invited me back. And just so happens we have her here tonight. Oh. The uh, legendary Ophelia Roop. So you can tell about that. Okay, I um, read um, Going All the Way in 1972, and my friends and I were so taken with it. Though that was the time of authors giving lectures and speeches on university campuses and public libraries, and I said, I want to hear this writer talk. That's the guy I want to hear. And we were all so taken with him. We all said yes. Well. <laughs> Ten years later, I had a job at the public library, a position where I did programming and events for the library. I hadn't forgotten that I wanted to hear Dan Wakefield speak. But I also knew that he had had death threats, and I knew that he was living secretly somewhere, incognito. <laughs> and I didn't know how to find him. Luckily, I met Alan Nolan that he mentioned earlier, and um, Alan had his phone number, and he gave it to me without asking Dan if he can give it to me. And when I called, Dan answered, even though he probably realized it's a call from Indianapolis. Thank you. Uh, and I convinced him. It took a long time to convince him the times have changed. It's safe to come back to Indianapolis, <laughs> that he has a great following, 
And um, yeah, we spent quite a bit of time back and forth. Um, I guess I did a good job of convincing him because he did come and his lecture speech was great success. Several hundred people attended and I think, I may be wrong, but I'm under the impression that his classmates from Shortridge gave a reception in his honor after the presentation. Well, I, I got back in touch with my classmates, and so whenever I started coming back, we had dinner with our own little group, and we still do now. And one of those classmates is here, who we'll hear from. But I remember, the main thing I remember about that phone call, Ophelia, is when you asked me to come back, I said, is it safe now? And you said, oh, yes, we use the book in book clubs. It's no big deal and all that sort of thing. Uh, so that's, and then you asked me to write a little thing in the, uh, the library newsletter yes. uh, saying what I was going to talk about. And all I remember is I wrote, uh, the first sentence was, I come in peace. <laughs> so it all worked out. I remember even uh, my babysitter from Winthrop Avenue was there, who I had once locked out of the house. So <laughs> she was even reconciled. So I figured things were all right. However, I have to say that a year or so ago, I was asked to speak at a club here. I won't name it, but a very distinguished club. And uh, when I went there, I got there early, and a nice woman was sitting at the table, the speaker's table, and she said she was on the board of the club. And she said, I'm so glad you we finally invited you. I said, well, you mean you had tried before? Couldn't you get a hold of me? And she says, no. She said, you know, some people are still sensitive about going all the way. So it ain't over till it's over. Well, I'll feel your roop, everybody. Thanks. Next, um, we have another, we have two other guests, very interesting people. Um, Georgia Buchanan is the first one, and I'm going to let Dan uh, tell you about her. She's a journalist and a writer who's recently come out with a memoir, and um, she has a, 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 an interesting take on growing up in Indianapolis in the 50s. Well, I, I wanted to say that uh, Georgia was, the, I, I think, the very first movie, TV, and radio, radio critic of the Indianapolis News and then worked in Washington for mutual broadcasting and return. And her younger sister, Mary Janakis, was, is a classmate of mine and our other guest and a good friend. And, uh, and I read George's memoir, which is called 48 and a Half, My Journey Beyond the Railroad Tracks, and a great story of her family. But I, I was always impressed and always felt very uh, understanding of the fact that <clears throat> Georgia went through one of the real social traumas of Indianapolis. After her sophomore year, she had to transfer from Manual High School to Shortridge, and that would have been difficult. So I'd like her to tell us about that. Yeah, yes, thank you, Dan. Uh, well, yes, it was traumatic. Um, I attended uh, 
uh, in grade school, School 5, which was on West Washington Street. And I said in my book, it was quite a change to go from school number five and then have to walk a mile and a half to Manual High School every day. My parents, my dad had a restaurant and sold hot dogs on West Washington Street. And we lived, as all the immigrants did at that time, above uh, either bakeries, pool halls, hardware stores, whatever. So we walked from 428 and a half West Washington Street to Manual High School. So my parents, we, what they wanted most was to buy a house and own a home so we could leave the flat. Well, I stayed there, or we lived there, and I was 15 years old. And so walking to Manual, you know, all that time, that's why I have strong legs today. I walked back and forth <laughs> for two years. And then anyway, so one day, one afternoon, my parents came and said, guess what, we're all going on the streetcar and we're gonna head north, okay. We get, who says, well, this is your new home. And it was at 40th and Illinois. Well, we were, of course, elated. We had our own, you know, our own bedrooms for a change, not just two rooms. And so, and then my mom checked with the schools and they said, guess what, you can't go to Manual High School anymore. You have to transfer to Shortridge. Well, okay, we said, okay, you know. So here I am, a short ridger, and I'm wearing the jumper that my mom made for me, and my little sandal shoes, I remember, and my sister all had matching outfits my mom made. So I get into Short Ridge High School, and it looked like every girl should be in the movies. They had long blonde hair, they wore cashmere sweaters, they had the pleated skirts, the saddle shoes. Of course, the girl you watch, the first thing you see is how the other girls are dressed. And I thought, I don't think I belong here, and I don't think I'm going to like it. And so I was used at Manual High School. Most of the students were children of immigrants, and they were Italian, they were Romanian or Greek, and we got dark hair, you know. And so it was. they all looked so different. And then they'd ask you, like, well, where do you live? And, you know, where, uh, what does your dad do or your mom do? And I said, well, he owns a restaurant. Oh, here on the north side? No, you have to go west on Washington Street where the immigrants live, and that's where my dad works. So immediately I saw the difference. I met a few of them that told me that their dads headed the banks in the city. They were the CEOs. They, you know, they were in politics. And so I thought, what in the world? I mean, no, I was never prepared to meet people, you know, of that caliber. And it was quite a divide. The city at that time was very segregated with the blacks living on the west side and where we lived bordered the black population. And, um, but to be thrown into this completely new world. And then the other thing I noticed that some of the students even had cars and they drove their cars to Shortridge High School. My parents didn't even have a car. I mean, we just kind of walked or bummed the streetcar ride or something like that. And it, um, it kind of turned me off as far as groupies because at Shortridge there were a lot of social clubs and they'd ask, you know, which one do you belong to? There was a Vola and they all had names. And every girl I met said, well, do you belong to this club? Well, no, no. And of course I was never asked. No wonder I didn't belong because I, I was never asked. Well, as you can imagine, I could not wait to graduate. I kept telling my dad, do I really have to finish high school? Oh, you better stay in school, you know. And so I did finish it. But the crowning blow was that I knew I wanted to write. And I knew that Shortridge had, I think, the one and only daily uh, newspaper in the country. It was called the Daily Echo. I thought, 
oh my gosh, you know, there's something good about the school. So I march into the office and say, you know, I, I, I can write and all, I really, you know, he said, you have to be a junior to write for the Shortridge Echo. I said, but I am a junior, but you have not attended Shortridge High School for two years. You're from Manual. You can't write for the Shortridge Echo. I said, well, it was the best thing that happened to me. It just inspired me to show them I can write, even though I wasn't good enough for the Shortridge Daily Echo. And I went down to the Star News at that time, and I applied for a job, and I said, and this man from Promotion, the director, interviewed me, and he said, now, where did you get your college degree, young lady? And I said, I haven't gone to college. I said, I just got out of Shortridge. Oh, okay, and you're applying for a job. We don't hire anybody without a college degree. Well, I did a turnaround, and off to Butler I went and got my degree. Four years later, I came back, sought him out. He hired me, and he said, I didn't hire you for anything else except your guts. He said, I've never had somebody come in here and march in my office and ask for a job without a college degree. <laughs> well, I'm happy to say, in defense of Shoreridge, that, uh, that Two years later, when her younger sister Mary came, uh, it was a different kind of scene, and uh, Mary was uh, greatly accepted, and she is in this wonderful group of uh, friends of the class of 50, and one of those friends is here with us, uh, Janet Herkey, and I, I've always had a special uh, friendship and love with her because when I was editor of the annual, I waited till the last minute to do the most difficult part, which was uh, pasting in the senior pictures and putting all the stuff along. And Janet came and helped me, and we stayed nights until we finished that thing. And I knew nobody else in the world would have done that. And so uh, Janet is uh, always a great person in my heart. And besides that, I want to say she is not a slut, but she's a theta. <laughs> so tell us about Shortridge when you were, and the social scene. Janet was also president of the, the biggest girls club, I mean the most important girls club called Uvola. Mm -hmm. So you can tell us about what that was like. The first thing I want to say, Dan, is that I never hated you, even when you wrote the book. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, I loved Shoreage. I had totally opposite experience from Georgia. And the interesting thing is I really wanted to go to Broderpool. I grew up at 56 in, Illinois, or 56 in Delaware, which was kind of halfway between, and you could go to either one. And I wanted to go to Broderpool because most of my friends from 84 were going to Broderpool. Nothing wrong with Broderpool, but my father said, no, you're going to go to Shortridge. It's one of the best schools in the town, and I drive by there on the way downtown. So I kind of grumpily went off to Shortridge. And the very first day of school, I met George's sister, Mary, and we became best friends and are still to this day. And that's, that's a lot of years, you know. So uh, Shortridge was a wonderful school to me because it inspired so much loyalty. There's a group of us that still get together on the last Monday every month at Daddy Jack's, who are all graduates of our class, and I think that's pretty amazing at our age, you know. 
but looking back, it was very clicky. And I probably was one of the biggest snobs of all, but I didn't think so. And a funny story is um, we used to go to the basketball games and we couldn't drive. And my dad loved to drive all the girls to the basketball games. And one night, we lost to a school and we were walking out and there were a group of, of kids behind us. And one of them said, I'd rather be Shortridge than anybody, that bunch of snobs. And my, my father thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard because he said they probably don't know anybody from Shortridge and they didn't. But back to the clubs, the, the clubs were the big thing. And you could be in several. Uh, Yavola and Subdeb were the only two. You could only be in one or the other. But then there were lots of other clubs. And they met every day or every night. And the most uh, important thing to do was getting ready for each club's dance. And they made cardboard signs with glitter, uh, everybody's names with the glitter. I think my basement still probably has glitter in it. So that was the big purpose. And we'd have the meetings. and. All the boys would come, you know, and it was just, it was really fun. And you mentioned about the, the VU. We would, we called it qualifying. We'd go out and drive around the VU looking for boys, just like yeah. you were looking yeah. for girls, you know. Yeah. But it was a wonderful experience. And like I said, the best thing was the loyalty, because as you said, Dan, we're all such dear friends. I mean, we're like family, sometimes better than family, I yeah. guess. So. Yeah. Well, so I'll always be grateful for that experience. Yeah, and I'm grateful that uh, we're back and we have the same group, except I, I noticed it started out with five boys mm -hmm. and three girls. Now there's still three girls, but only two boys. Right, and we Me miss and, them. Me and yeah. uh, Don Morris, the famous moto. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was really funny, but when we were seniors in high school, for some reason, we, me and the other guys, there were five guys that we called ourselves unpretentiously the high quintrunal, <laughs> which we made up. And we somehow decided, we wanted to decide who would live the oldest. And we decided right there in the basement, it would be Moto. And yeah. he's going to win. He's going to win. I can tell. <laughs> I, he spends half the year at Wawa yeah. so he can't miss. <laughs> at any rate, we, we still do uh, get together, and it's a great feeling. And uh, we, all we do is talk about shortage. And in fact, when I met Vonnegut uh, the first time, a lot of people said, oh, what did you talk about, writing? What did he tell you? I said, no, we talked about <laughs> high school. So, and he was always very proud that in his class, two years uh, older than him, but a woman in the literary club with him was named Madeline Pugh. Madeline Pugh Davis became the first head writer of the I Love mm -hmm. Lucy show. Right. So... Uh, we had a lot to be proud of. Well, we had a wonderful education there. Yeah. I think better in some ways than a college education. Yeah, well, you know, you know Vonnegut yeah. used to say that uh, he went to two, three colleges through the Army mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and two other uh, universities, and the best education he ever mm -hmm. had was at Shortridge. Yeah, it's so true. It was a great thing. So, so let me interrupt and just, and so, so we've been talking about the real thing, what it was like in Indianapolis in the 50s. But with the book, Dan, what's it like to, I mean, you wrote a book about that, but it, it's fiction, it's a novel, but some of that's real, isn't it? I mean, how do you make fiction out of fact? Well, it's really uh, very frustrating because people don't separate the two. They think all that stuff happened. <clears throat> in, in the novel, the character Gunner as part of his rebellion, grows a beard. And there's this, well, actually, 
Nobody at the time I knew in Indianapolis had a beard at all. They would probably, and then there was a scene where Gunner and Sonny get kicked out of the Meridian Hills Club swimming pool because they say Gunner can't go swimming with a beard. Uh, and nobody could do that. So uh, a lot of people really in the last year, they come up to me and say, God, that must have been amazing when you and Ted were kicked out of Meridian Hills. And I can't explain that none of that stuff happened and that nobody had a beard in those days. And by the way, all this stuff was not just Indianapolis. In fact, a friend of mine, a writer named Sarah Davidson, wrote a later an introduction to a later edition of the book. And she told about, she grew up in Los Angeles. And in high school, she and her boyfriend went to, wanted to go to Disneyland. And they went and her boyfriend had a jacket and tie and khaki pants, but he also had a beard, and they wouldn't let him in. And so they demanded to see the manager to say, why couldn't we get in? And uh, the manager came out and looked at the guy with the beard, and he said, this is a family place. <laughs> so uh, I, I think in the book, Sonny telling the story of the beard says, uh, and he's shocked when he sees Gunner with a beard, even though he's his friend. He didn't know Gunner was going to grow a beard. And he says, well, he, he's thinking to himself, well, beards were okay for guys like Jesus and Lincoln, uh, <laughs> but not in Indianapolis. I've often said I could have set the whole thing in Cleveland uh, as far as any of the mores or the social stuff, any of that. But I don't know anything about Cleveland. And I don't care about Cleveland. And I really always love this place. And I, I have very fond associations with the streets, the schools. Everything means something to me. And, and when you write something in fiction, you want a place that you care about, you know. So that was, that was one of the reasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there, there were a few lines I, I've, in all of my novels, I, usually there's one or two lines that are so outrageous, you can't believe anybody said that. Those are always lines that I really heard from somebody. But uh, most of it, it's really like a what-if novel. You know, like, what if two guys who are very opposite get together when they've just come home and they don't know what they're going to do with their lives and their parents want them to stay home and marry the girl next door, and they want to see the world. So this is the novel. It's like, okay, what yeah. would have happened if a guy like Ted and a guy, not really me, because I had to make the guy opposite of Ted so that he was really uh, nerdy and shy, which Janet can tell you I was. I may have been nerdy, but I wasn't shy. <laughs> and uh, so, not. but it was, it, it's really an imagination. What would have happened if, and then from what you know about, you you start writing and creating, and, and that's, that's what happened, though nobody will believe that. <laughs> so, so you, uh, I, well, I, I've talked to other people, and I read the book, and I felt like I was both of those guys, really. I was Sonny and Gunner. I was, you know, a nerd, but I was also pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, and so w which were you? Well, obviously, I was not the football star, uh, <laughs> but I was also not... Sonny, and uh, in fact, the way I thought of Sonny, I imagined there was one guy in our class who hardly ever said anything. He's the only 
boy, I knew who blushed. He actually blushed. So I imagine him. You know, you have to picture somebody when you write, or I do, as a character, Some, even though it may have nothing to do with him. But I imagine him being Sonny. And what if he met up with Gunner, who was a guy, would be a guy like Ted? And, uh, and I must say, when we did the movie, uh, just like what you just said, Mark Pellington, the director, the first time I met with him and Tom Gorai, his partner, uh, I said, well, this was like in, in the 90s. And I said, how come you guys, and they, they just turned 30. I said, how come you guys even read this book? And Mark said, well, his father belonged to the literary guild, and he was looking for something to read on a rainy day, and he pulled out going all the way. He said, I saw it had something to do with sex and young people, so I read it. <laughs> and then he leaned across the table. He said, you know those two guys, Sonny and Gunner? I said, yeah. He said, I'm both those guys. So I knew that he got it. Uh, well, thank you, everybody. We have, uh, we have Susan well, Neville here. Well, I, I am very happy to have Susan Neville. And I, I got to tell you, it's not because she's just hitting, sitting here. I've always said, this is the best writer in Indiana. And she has not gotten the due she had. And uh, I read Indiana Winter before I met her. And I used to use it in writing classes. And it's one of the most evocative beautiful books I know. So I have asked her to read uh, a part of it um, at, the, at the beginning. It's sort of like an epigraph, but in her own words, uh, from Indiana Winter, and I'm so happy she's here to read it. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Dan. Um, I feel like I should say whether I d identify with Gunner or with Sonny, <laughs> or whether I was a Theta or a Kappa or <laughs> Um, anyway, I first met Dan um, when I saw him reading my book on, on, on a beach in Florida, actually, when we were both teaching at a writer's conference. So I'm very, very grateful to be here at the first Uncle Dan story hour. Um, so this is called Stone. My home is a harbor. It floats on limestone high above the Ohio. Underneath Underneath our feet, acids eat away the stone, and there are underground rivers and caves, and I swear it, if you were small enough and didn't mind tight black places, darker than any dark you could imagine, and you could crawl through slime and rushing water, through tunnels that could end with any step in a cavern so deep you would never stop falling, if you didn't mind knowing that could happen at any moment, if the thought of cave-ins and earthquakes does not concern you because so you somehow carry yourself with you gently as a baby, you could be the first person to crawl from Indiana to the brightly lit caverns in Kentucky. And imagine it, after years of groping, how like heaven it would seem to you, emerging in even the tackiest tent-colored cavern lit with red and blue and green floodlights, seeing a man with a flashlight, aiming it at the ceiling, saying, doesn't this look like draperies? Doesn't that rock look like bacon frying? Doesn't that one look like an elf? Here in the body of the earth, isn't nature a miracle, millions of years ago, making a rock that looks like a toaster? And still, we float so gently on this gloom, 
in the graying yellow October daylight, in the night lit with candles, in the strong wood houses and barns, in the orchards where the apples fall into our hands and the leaves twist down. We sail on the land as though it's real, our compasses pointing north, as though we know where we are. We eat sugar pears and watch the sugar maples blaze, and we suck on sweet candy and smell the damp, decaying leaves, and we hold on tight as the boat heaves or the land pitches. Thank you. And Sophie, give us our parting song. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern on Monday, August 15, 2016. For tickets and information on future shows, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by Beer Brewery, Miller Eads, and listeners like you. Special thanks to The Neon Sign for guiding the way to the Red Key. Host Will Higgins from the Indianapolis Star, Co-producers Michael Therwechter and Pat Chastain. Guests Ophelia Roop, Georgia Buchanan, Janet Brucker, Susan Neville, and Sophie Fought. And thanks to Jim, Dolly, and Leslie Settle and the fantastic staff at the Red Key Tavern. Our recording engineer is Steve McQuarrie. 90.1 program director is the awesome Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was created by Michael Therwechter. Thanks for listening to our first show. I'm reminded of something Vonnegut used to say. Hold on to your hat. We may end up miles from here. <laughs>